Well, welcome. Let me add my words of welcome to all of you. We're so happy that you are in our midst, and we're so thankful. In fact, my uh, wife is here today. I want to, uh, on behalf of my wife and myself, invite all of you to our home tonight. So come over down to uh, the, the house, and we'd love to have you there and uh, get to meet each of you uh, tonight at probably, what is it, 5.30 or something? You know, you'll, you'll be given the right time. We'll be there waiting for you. But we're so happy that you're here, and I know there's so many journeys that have led and crisscrossed this place over the years, and to be a part of this is a great thing, so thank you so much. Have you ever read something that, the new, that you knew the minute you read it, you would never, ever forget it? I had the experience uh, 38 years ago now when I actually was a first-year seminary student. I read something in Christian Today magazine, and it was actually an, a letter to the editor, so it was about an article the previous month, which I don't remember reading, but it was about somebody who had written an article, and they had expressed some doubts about the authority of the New Testament. And this person uh, had written into the letter to the editor the next month, and this is what I read, and he was clearly upset about all of this and these so-called findings of enlightened liberal scholarship. In the letter to the editor, he remarked, I don't know any Greek or Hebrew or stuff like that, he said, but I know these scholars are dead wrong. And then he quoted his, his riveting statement, which I want to quote to you. He said, and I quote, To these scholars, I'm probably just a simple-minded fool, but... I would rather be a fool on fire than a scholar on ice. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I'd rather be a fool on fire, he said, than a scholar on ice. Well, I, I do appreciate his angst and his passion in that letter, but I do think it's a tough choice, isn't it? A fool on fire or a scholar on ice. Could it be we could be scholars on fire? Is there another alternative for us? Why can't we be people who are fully informed, heart and mind, to be part of what God has called us to? I think it does reveal, that, that letter to the editor, an all-too-familiar assumption that it goes throughout the Christian world that a warm heart leads to an empty head. And a filled head leads somehow to someone who's disconnected with their heart and love for Jesus. Maybe you've already been to hear the the jokes, when someone says you're going to seminary, oh, you're going to cemetery. If not, you will. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, welcome to Asbury Theological Seminary where scholarship is on fire. Where the life of the mind enlarges the heart and where the devoted heart helps us to capture the mind of Christ. Welcome to Asbury Theological Seminary, where hand and heart, uh, head and heart go hand in hand is not just a slogan, but a description of who we are as a community that for almost a hundred years has been called the Asbury Experience, that blessed bond of head and heart brought into that nuptial embrace. Probably no one embodied this much as John Wesley himself. Any man who gets up and prays for an hour in the morning, then is found reading his Greek New Testament, followed by feeding the poor, 
and instructing new believers in class meetings and by dusk is preaching the gospel at the brickyards. That's my kind of man. How about you? A person whose head, heart, and feet, the knot is all tied. That is who we are. Our mission statement says we are, our, our mission in your life is to both theologically educate you and also make sure you're spirit-filled and sanctified. Find me a seminary with that in their mission statement. Even we can hardly believe we say it. But we do. Our text this morning is found in the first epistle of Peter. There ever was a man who struggled with his head and his heart. It was Peter, wasn't it? I mean, Peter was the kind of guy that clearly led with his heart. I mean, you know, he's the one, Lord, I mean, I'll deny you, but I'll never deny you. That's a really bad way to start. Next thing you know, he's denying Christ three times. Remember when Jesus came in the upper room to wash the disciples' feet? Lord, you'll never wash my feet. He said, well, you know, no part of me then. Oh, well, then wash my whole body as well. And this is Peter. The guy leads with his heart. And yet, the Lord helped Peter and drew Peter into recognizing he had to also bring his mind to Jesus. And this epistle so beautifully brings that together in so many ways. In fact, the context of our letter, our text, is Peter giving exhortations to the church, encouraging them as Christians in the face of opposition. Peter writes at a time a lot like ours, when the church was seeking to get out its message in the midst of hostility, ignorance, apathy, and suspicion. And what does he write to the believers? Three things I want to highlight in these two verses. First, the sanctified heart. Look at verse 15. He says, In your hearts, set apart or sanctify Christ as Lord. That is a tremendous... In fact, it's in the text, it's an imperative. It's an aorist imperative. Set apart Christ as Lord. Make your heart completely His. Make it holy. It's where we get our word holiness from, sanctification from. The consecrated life begins at the heart. The only verse in Scripture that's found in the Old Testament, that's found in the Law, the Prophet, and the Writings, is that text, you will seek me and you will find me when you search me with all of your heart. David's prayer may be your prayer. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Psalm 86, 11. This is in Wesleyan terms, a sanctified heart is one that's been reoriented towards God. That's what we pray for each of you. For, Paul, for Peter, the sanctified heart is never simply understood in purely devotional terms. Where simply it's something where faith is hidden in your heart. Where you know, I believe something something vague that, you know, when, when pressed, you mumble it out. No, it's something that fills the whole frame of your life, the whole frame of who you are. For, for Peter, faith is an active verb. It's not something you, it's something you do, not just something you have. For Peter, we see him like on the day of Pentecost, or, the, with the, or just at the Pentecost, with addressing the lame beggar, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Now that is active faith. Amen? Abraham, leaving his land, his family, going to the place that God had called him, that is a sign of active faith. 
or Rahab, an amazing woman who threw in her lot with, with the people of God and hid those spies under the stalks of flax on her roof. That was faith in action. Or those four men who, who in their faith was bringing their paralytic friend to Jesus. You see, it was, as their fingers, faith was in their fingers, wasn't it? As it clawed their way through the tile and mud to let their paralytic friend down in the presence of Jesus. It was faith at work, active faith, faith working. And we, we know we're not saved through works, but you need a faith that works and works in this world. And many of you have, by the very fact that you are here today, you have left your homes, left your people, even as far away as Australia, and you have made your home in Wilmore. That is faith at work. Well done. You passed the first test. You're here. No one comes to Wilmore unless God calls them. <laughs> We're not exactly a destination spot, you know. No one can imagine winning the World Series. Said, but where are you going? I'm going to Wilmore. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. You're here because God called you here. And you're trying to figure out why, and yet it's that step of faith, that decisive action. That's the heart that's been reoriented that Peter's talking about here. Set apart, sanctify your heart in your heart, Jesus Christ as Lord. Secondly, Peter not only calls us to a sanctified heart, but to a solidified mind. Look at the rest of verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Peter does not envision the church sending out fools on fire for Jesus. He does not. He says we should be prepared. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 3, 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. Brings this whole text together. Chapter 1, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. That's part of what you do here in seminary. Peter, of course, had, was warming himself by the fire that night. And three times he denied Christ. And the cock crowed. He realized he had not prepared himself for the challenges that the world brought into his life. It's part of the trajectory of the journey of Peter, which led him to eventually this epistle. And I think the cock is crowing our own day. In so many ways in which we have not been able to give a defense for the hope that's within us. We live in a world that, that's increasingly broken, society where discourse is reduced to Twitter feeds. Really? And we've been called to serious theological reflection. In Twitter, nothing can be said if it goes beyond 280 characters. We want to say no. A lot more needs to be said. A world where you're going out with a message that's framed by fake news, post-truth, alternative facts, the Twitterization of all discourse. This is a huge challenge for us who are called the people who are thoughtful, who bring their minds to Christ. The church, as it's currently arrayed, in the Western world especially, is just simply not getting the job done. If you were to travel across this country and you can choose any denominations you want to, any, or all of them. You could just do a nice spread. 
and spent an entire year crossing this country and going to a different church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and hearing whatever was said behind the pulpit, what would you experience? Well, you'd experience a lot of sermons that require a lot of goodwill to sit through. You would hear a lot of things that traded on faith, that assumed that people had faith, a lot of goodwill, a lot of the troublesome questions that are facing us, the deep onks people are living through, travail, cultural questions pressing upon us, go unanswered, unaddressed. There'd be an extraordinary amount of bland moralizing and cute stories and a few funny jokes. You would meet a lot of very nice people. What would be exceptional would be a clear, well-thought-out exposition of Scripture which actually applied the text to real issues people were actually facing who were sitting there before you every week after week after week. It'd be an exception. It would happen. It would happen. Thank God it would happen. But it would be an exception of your experience. You would certainly find people, little place for lament in today's church, even though we are living in exile. I mean, how can you lament when you're sitting in a sanctuary that's been renamed last week the Celebration Center? You see the challenge we're under? You're preparing to enter leadership into a church which has drunk deeply from the poison wells of a market-driven, consumeristic, domesticated church. As a church, we've been, we're very actually quite adept in measuring where people are culturally, we are at least neglectful and have done any really sustained theological reflection on where they should be culturally. Indeed, it seems that the contemporary church's prom directive, oh boy, I love that, I'm a Star Trek fan, so I have to have a prom directive. The prom directive of the contemporary church is always adapt to culture, and it trades on the unspoken, defining question of the modern church. What is the least... What is the least one has to do to become a Christian? That is one of the defining questions of evangelicalism. And from my point of view and Asbury's point of view, that impulse must be opposed at every turn. We must resist Christian minimalism. We must resist those who want to boil the whole glorious gospel down to a single slogan, some simple phrase or transaction. And so it's time for you and your colleagues that you'll join here to recognize that this whole minimalistic, reductionistic project of Christianity in the West is a failed project. We're calling you to go forth and disciple a whole new generation of Christians. That the Methodist movement, the Wesleyan movement, our whole stream is about discipleship. It is wrong to try to get as many people as possible to acknowledge as superficially as allowable a gospel which is theologically unsustainable. We need to be reminded of the words of Soren Kierkegaard. And if you never heard of Soren Kierkegaard, rest easy, you will. (laughs) The words of Soren Kierkegaard in his book uh, Against Christendom where he writes, Christianity is the profoundest wound that can be inflicted upon us. 
calculated on the most dreadful scale to collide with everything. Now that sounds a lot more like take your cross and follow me than the kind of stuff that gets doled out Sunday by Sunday across the land. Asbury Seminary exists to equip you to give an informed, thought-out response to a world desperate for real answers. In fact, the word in the text here is the word, the phrase, give an answer, or give a reason, or give a hope, what all that is, apologion, which means we're going to get apologetics from. Be prepared. And we are here to prepare you. We are an academic institution. We take no, you know, we don't apologize for that. We will demand hard work without apology. Uh, this will not be a cruise ship. It will be more like a formational voyage. It'll be some difficult days and nights. There are times when the winds will howl. But it'll be a voice, a time of, of fruitful ardor for you. This will be a place where you will, you know, claw your way through the Greek New Testament, but there you will see afresh the face of God. This will be the place where you might have the opportunity to, to stay up late at night discussing some theological problem with one of your friends in the dorm or in the community. In the process, you'll find your God enlarging your heart. This is a place where you might preach your very first sermon, or maybe if you're in counseling, maybe your first supervised counseling session. But there you realize what it means to be part of the, the joining God and co-laboring with him as he redeems the world. What a great privilege will be yours. Finally, Peter calls not only to the sanctified heart and the solidified mind, but to the sensitized witness. The final phrase, verse 16, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We live in a day where civil discourse has pretty much been lost in our culture. So part of the, part of the role of the church is to reintroduce civil discourse in our culture. The human mind can almost withstand anything, even an intellectual assault, an argument, however lucid. It has very little defense against love. The power of love, of kindness, of gentleness, of listening. There's something very compelling about a life that's completely given over to Jesus Christ. We have a great gospel to proclaim, and we should proclaim it, but do it in ways that's framed by gentleness and respect. So you're here at Asbury to be equipped, because I hope that you know that the business-as-usual approach that has framed so much of the church is not sufficient to reach this generation for Christ. I hope you realize as you come here that this generation will not be reached by a pastor as a comfortable career option approach. This gospel will not be reached by people whose thought is climbing the denominational ladder or worrying about your salary, your pension plan, your parsonage, all of that. All of that must be relegated to the rearview mirror because we have a huge missional challenge in this country. And we are rising to meet it, to equip you to meet that. God's calling you to be street lights, not sanctuary lights. We've got to be out in the world letting them know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, these are the days of Perpetua from Carthage, who, although nursing a child, she was willing to face the lions in the arena rather than deny the gospel that worked in her heart. I believe we have here in our midst, among our women students and others as well, new generation of perpetuas who will demonstrate a solidity of heart and mind for the world. These are the days of Athanasius, the great Alexandrian bishop who saw the whole church turning to Arianism. You may not know what that is yet either, but you will. Just think Jehovah Witnesses. They're the last holdout, okay? The whole world turning to that particular Christology. And Athanasius said no. He had to stand against the whole church. They actually gave him a name. They called him Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. He called the whole church back. We're here today because of that fierce boldness of Athanasius. There's some of you that today, well, someday will go out and have to stand even in the face of the church itself and say, go back and read the text again. We need Athanasius. I believe there's future Athanasiuses here in our midst. These days of Augustine, the whole empire was collapsing. The culture was degrading. Rome is sacked. Everybody was like 9-11 every day in the Roman Empire. And somebody had to write that amazing book, The City of God, which reframed the whole Christian enterprise and brought us to, again, another great generation of Christians. There are people here today that can't even imagine the book that you will someday write that will change the church. And change us. We will, we will read it too with you because you've been prepared to write a book that only your generation can write. These are the days of Martin Luther, where the church had lost its way, lost its prophetic voice, got corrupted with all kinds of other stuff. And Luther had to wade out in the river and said, Here I stand, I can do no other. There's times where you, there needs to be people that stand up with courage. I am praying for a generation of men and women with courage. One of the great needs of the church today are people with courage to stand up, be true to the gospel, be true to what God has done in your heart and trust his work in your life. These are the days of John Wesley who preached himself out of every pulpit in England. How about that? But that's when he declared, since I have no more pulpit to preach in, I guess I've determined that the world is my parish. We need that kind of expansive vision. So welcome to Asbury Theological Seminary, where head and heart go hand in hand. Welcome to Asbury Seminary, where you're being equipped to be scholars on fire. And someday you'll graduate from this place. You'll walk off that stage. People do graduate from here. It does happen. You'll graduate and go out and you will give them heaven. Amen.